Today we're starting a new series called Resurrection People, Living as Easter People All Year Long. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, spent about 18 months working for Starbucks. I graduated from seminary, um, was working part-time at a church, needed some extra income, went to work at Starbucks, and I worked at a really interesting store. We were kind of located at a cross-section of Phoenix, and so we just had incredible ethnic diversity. We'd sit in the you know, lobby at, at night, and you hear all these different languages spoken. It was like the UN. It was crazy. But, but we saw some incredible things happen, and not always positive incredible and so one night, one of my friends, who's great with words, made a statement that just summed up our store. He said, Scott, what has been seen cannot be unseen. And it was just true. The, the day that I went in to clean the bathroom, and it appeared that someone had taken the time to eat their sonic lunch while going to the bathroom. There was the chili cheese coney over here, the tater tots, the cherry limeade, and the milkshake. It was just, I won't say delicious, it was something else. Um, and then there was the night that we were working drive through and a man drove through in his giant truck, pulling a boat. And he ordered a venti hot coffee, which if you don't speak Starbucks is large, large hot coffee with 29 sugar packets. And so we tore them apart individually and poured them all into his cup. And my coworker, who's more bold than I am, asked if he wanted a side of health insurance with that. <laughs> no joke. Um, luckily, he was a supervisor, so I couldn't question him. So, so we had these experiences and there were things that we just couldn't unsee. There were memories we couldn't shake off. And the people in the video I'm about to show you, they embody this comment. What has been seen cannot be unseen. And those people, they're never going to pump gas, walk along a sidewalk, cross the street. We teach our kids to look both ways, but I'm not sure that really applies. I think they probably did look both ways and, and still see what happened. See, each of them have had an experience that's marked them. And it's one thing to watch it on a video, it's another thing to live it. This morning, I want to begin with a question. What have you seen that changed you forever? What have you witnessed that you'd mark time as before that and after that? What experiences have you been through when you go, I'm just never going to be the same because of that? positively or negatively. See, I believe that each of us have moments that have marked us forever. They're things we cannot unsee that we carry with us. And for those early disciples and followers of Jesus, they followed a man around for three years who they believed was the Messiah. He was crucified, buried, and they gave him up for dead. And then he was resurrected. He came back to life. And that event marked them forever. You see, the resurrection changed the disciples. They weren't the same people before the resurrection that they were afterwards. You say, Scott, well, what is resurrection beyond the resurrection of Jesus? Resurrection is the hope that out of death, life can emerge. It's the hope that if you've been betrayed or wounded, that you can come to the place where you trust someone again. Enough to let them in. Resurrection is the belief that if you've lost a job or a business or a dream, that, that you'd apply for a job again. You'd apply for a loan again. You'd dream again. If you've written someone off, they disappointed you, they've been stubborn, they've betrayed you, they've ridiculed you, resurrection is watching that person change and watching their attitude towards you change. 
If you're like the Grace and Peace gals and you work in a corner of the world that's broken and twisted and heart-wrenching, resurrection is believing for life and beauty and justice and love. This morning, I want to ask you, has resurrection marked you? Notice I didn't ask you if you believe in the resurrection. I didn't ask you if you were here last Sunday for Easter Sunday. But has resurrection marked you? Because when you experience the resurrection of Jesus, it's not something you get over. In the way that many of us kind of get over Easter. We forget it happened. There's a lot less pastels in the room today. And for many of us, Easter Sunday seems like years ago. But when resurrection marks you like any other event that marks you, you are never the same. See, many of us know this idea of being marked far more from the negative and the positive. We've been marked by cancer and war, incarceration and divorce, abuse and addiction. Many of us have experiences we can never forget. And we're not the same because of them. But we're not just marked by our experiences with the brokenness and fragility of life on earth. We're marked by the resurrection of Jesus. And these early disciples were changed in a way that is possible and accessible for us today. And so this morning, I want to share with you my big idea. And that's when we witness resurrection we become resurrection people. When we not just witness it happen in Jesus, but when we witness it happen in ourselves and in those around us, we become resurrection people. The whole goal of this series, this resurrection series, is to take Easter from just one day in the spring when the room is fuller and the colors are more pastel and we sit up a little bit straighter and we're a little bit more engaged to say if the resurrection really is the center point in our faith, if it really does change everything, then it should influence how we live all year long, not just on a Sunday in the spring. And so I believe when we witness resurrection, we begin to become resurrection people. And this morning, I want to talk to you about what that looks like. I want to answer a question. What transformed in these early disciples because of the resurrection? Because I believe what changed in them that made them the resurrection people that they were is available and accessible to us. It can be our experience as well. And the first thing that transformed in them was that they accepted their identity as witnesses. They accepted their identity as witnesses. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. He didn't witness the life of Jesus, but he did a detailed research account of it. He was a doctor, and he wrote two books, an account of Jesus' life called Luke and the history of the early church called Acts. And in Acts 1, we read the last words of Jesus. If you've ever been with someone while they were dying, you know that last words are lasting words. If you've sat with someone there, you know those words hang with you. You may have heard the person you're talking to speak 10,000 words to you, but those words you remember forever. And these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. In Acts 1.8, he says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you could receive power if you took the Holy Spirit seriously. Or you should work hard at being witnesses. You should dig down deeper and discipline yourself to be better witnesses. He says you will be. He promises them. It's almost a prophecy. And it's an interesting contrast because many of us also remember another account of this experience from Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. And in his gospel, his biography of Jesus, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he records the last words of Jesus. And he says that some of Jesus' last words were, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. In this recording of this section of Jesus' last words, there are four different verbs. I know some of you have forgotten English class a long time ago, but the verbs here are go, baptize, go make, baptize, and teach. He commands them. This is the marching orders of every follower of Jesus in every church, that we are to go, we are to make disciples, we are to baptize, we are to teach. Those are commands. But if you look back at Acts 1.8, there's no commands here. He just says what will happen. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And if you know the history of the Bible, you know the Bible was not written in English because English wasn't around as in a recognized language at the time. The Bible was written in Greek. And the Greek word that we translate witness is a word we're familiar with. It's a word known as martyr. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, what he said literally is, you will be my martyrs. And as soon as I say the word martyrs, this whole mental picture pops up for you. Because in our world, someone who is a martyr is someone who dies for their cause. Someone who is killed for what they believe in. Someone who is told, renounce that or die, and they choose to remain faithful, even in the face of death. But before that happened, the word martyr just meant witness. And yet in the 60s AD, not the 160s, the original 60s, the early church began to be persecuted. A man named Nero came to power as emperor over Rome, and he had a laundry list of issues. Um, if you've ever seen a dysfunctional president or a president who has issues, he had nothing on Nero. Nero set fire to the city of Rome and then blamed the Christians because Christianity was the fastest growing system the Roman Empire had ever seen. In 30 years, it had gone from the backside of nowhere to the center of power. And he was threatened by these Christians. And so Christians began to be crucified, burned at the stake, and thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. And as they were killed for their faith, they began to be called martyrs. But Jesus didn't say, you will be killed for your faith. He said, you will be my witnesses. See, the truth is, all of us are martyrs to something. Every single day. Our lives give witness to what we believe. We give witness with our words. 
We give witness with our spending. We give witness with the way that we use our time. We give our witness with the way that we treat other people, the way we respond to global events, the things that we post on Facebook. All of these things are examples of places where we are martyrs, where we are witnesses. The question is, what is your life a witness to today? What are you testifying to with your life? The people around you who watch you live, who are your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, who follow you online, when they see you, what do they see? And that's why for me, I've been so uncomfortable over the years with the use of the word witnessing within the church. We say, yeah, this person is really good at witnessing. And what that means in church speak, Christianese, what it means is that person is good at explaining their faith verbally. Well, here's the thing. You may not be comfortable with witnessing, but you do it every single day. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are a witness and a martyr. In 2011, we buried my friend, Ann McCulloch. She died after a bout with cancer. And hers was the first funeral I'd ever spoken. And I stood up on a stage like this, and my eulogy that day, I said, Anne was a martyr. She wasn't killed for her faith. She lost her bout with cancer. But you are all here today. There was 500 people in the room. And you knew Anne because of her witness. Love, generosity, and compassion. Anne didn't have to go, okay, I need to be really loving today. I need to be really generous today. I need to be really compassionate today. She just was. And so there was the woman in the room who was having a bad day, and Anne said, let's go to Disneyland. And they just got in the car and went. There was the young family in the room that couldn't make their rent. And one day there was some cash in the mailbox. There was the 16-year-old boy who was being raised by a single mom, and Anne stepped in and spoke truth into his life told him he was capable of more. There was the young pastor standing on the stage who had completed seminary because she paid for his last semester when he couldn't afford it. Anne was a witness, and her death only clarified what she had been a witness to for years before. You're a martyr, whether you accept that identity or not. And these early believers, they owned their identity as a witness And they began living, testifying to what they'd seen and experienced in the resurrection of Jesus. The second thing they did is they expected great things. They expected great things. In a moment, I'm going to show you a Bible verse that many of you don't believe is true. You might say, I believe in the Bible, Scott. I know. But you don't believe this verse is true. Want to see it? In his last meal with the disciples, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus had a conversation in John 14 through 16. And in John 14, 12, he said these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus promised his disciples this you will do greater things than I have done. And that promise applies to you. Jesus promised that you 
because his spirit resides in you, are capable of doing greater things than he did. Say, but Jesus raised people from the dead. He helped lame people walk. People who were blind could then see. People who couldn't hear could then hear. He said, you, by the power of his spirit, are capable of greater things. See, I told you you didn't believe it. But these early disciples did. They encountered a problem. The persecution from religious leaders or the the problems of being a new group of people who believed in something and faced skepticism. And you know what they said? Well, Jesus was killed in the most violent way possible and he came back from the dead. So anything's possible. They expected great things. And many of us don't know this experience when it comes to Jesus, but we do know it in a different context. How many of you in this room have ever thought about or who have bought a new car? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. Okay. All of you have had this experience. You start thinking about buying a new car. You get in the car you have or in your new car and you drive around and miraculously everyone has the same car you do. It's a scientific phenomenon called Bader-Mainhoff phenomenon or frequency illusion. And most of us have experienced it. What happens is your brain is a supercomputer that processes a massive amount, a mind-blowing amount of data every single day. And to do that, your brain does two things. It creates patterns and it writes stories. And so what happens when you're thinking about buying a new car is that becomes something your brain is more aware of than normal. So when you get in your car to drive, your brain notices cars that previously you'd ignored and it connects them to the car you're looking for and the story that it writes is, wow, everybody has this car. I should go buy it. Or I made a good decision in buying it. The problem is those cars were there all along. They didn't all go to the same dealership you did. They didn't all have the same idea you did. And yet magically there are Chevy Silverados and Honda CRVs and Nissan Sentras everywhere you look. Notice I didn't say Priuses because people don't drive Priuses in Prescott apparently. (laughs) But you ignored them before. Why? Because you didn't expect to see them. See, for the early disciples, resurrection was their reality and the pattern they expected. It wasn't just something that happened to Jesus years before that. It was a distant memory. It was the reality that they experienced and it was the pattern they expected on a daily basis in their world. And so when they encountered a situation, they said, I don't know, what would resurrection look like here? This seems hopeless, but so did Jesus, and he now has come back from the dead, so maybe this could be different. They learned something that we need to learn, and that's that our expectations shape our experience. Our expectations shape our experience. Now, this isn't the secret, that popular book a few years ago, where if you think it, it'll happen. But we have to recognize that our expectations are having a profound impact on our daily experience. If you put a person in a box and say, this is just who they are, 
and they're never going to change, then you will not let them become a new person relationally. If you go into your business or your company and go, this is just the way things work around here. This is the only way they can work and nothing can ever change. Guess what? You will not allow that change to happen with your influence. Your expectations shape your experience. And yet for these early believers, their expectations were not fatalistic or doomsday. They were hopeful. Now notice, they don't deny the brokenness in the world. And if you're going to be a resurrection person, you're going to have to face the fact that our world is broken and not as it should be. There are more human slaves on earth today than there have ever been in human history. Ever. One billion people do not have access to clean water today. Between 30 and 50 million children will die this year from water-related diseases. The world is broken. But we can be resurrection people not by denying reality. No, because our resurrection hope defies reality. There's a very big difference. For far too long, followers of Jesus have been seen as people who are naive and don't live in the real world. We're hopeful, but that hope is more idealism than hope. No, our hope looks reality in the face and says, you know what? That's broken. Yep, it's not as it should be. But guess what? My God conquered the grave. And so this can change too. This is who I was. This is who I am. That could be different. Not because I'm a great person, but because my God is greater than anything in this world. Our hope doesn't deny reality. Our hope defies reality. And so for these early believers, they said, we are witnesses. We are martyrs to this with our lives. We're going to expect great things. We're going to expect resurrection, not to be an event in the past, but a reality in the present and the future. And we're going to live expecting God to do greater things through us than he did. And then the third thing, they experienced incredible community. They experienced incredible community. What happened in the days after that conversation in Acts 1-8 and Matthew 28 was profound. 120 disciples, early followers of Jesus, people who'd been with him for two to three years. Jesus sent them back to Jerusalem and he said, await my Holy Spirit. So they gathered in that upper room where they'd broken bread and shared wine in the experience we call communion of the Lord's Supper. We celebrate on the first Sunday of every month. And they were waiting for God's spirit to come. And according to Luke and Acts, the Holy Spirit descended on them like tongues of fire. It's very figurative, imaginative language. And so for years, artists have tried to represent what that looked like. I, I chose a picture here that wasn't too freaky. Trust me, I found some on Google that were bizarre um, because no one knows what this looks like. But these 120 people who were most of them from Galilee, Galilee's the backside of nowhere. Nobody comes from Galilee. They began to speak in languages that they, A, didn't know how to speak, and B, never heard. Because the city of Jerusalem was filled for the festival of Pentecost 
with people from across the world. And so foreigners heard people from not their country speaking their language, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. And they began to say, these people are plastered. I mean, they're just wasted. Now, I don't know about you. I've seen somebody plastered. I've never seen somebody wasted and speaking Farsi, you know, who's from Prescott. You know, I just haven't seen that, you know. Uh, maybe I need to get out more. I don't know. Um, but Peter gets up and he says, this is who Jesus is. It's nine o'clock in the morning. These men aren't drunk. This is what God does. And that day, the church went from 120 people, a small church, to a mega church of 3,120 people. It was the longest baptism service ever. Peter had the worst backache ever. He had to go to the chiropractor the next day, you know? And what happened next is recorded in Acts 2.42, and this is what the passage reads. Luke says, these early disciples, these followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I have a complicated history with this passage. For years, I hated it. Hated it. Refused to preach this passage. Typically, pastors don't say these things in sermons. But this passage was like, leave it to Beaver Church. It was ideal and not real. And people would just go, I wish I could be part of the church in Acts 2. Wouldn't that be amazing? And I said, yeah, but that's not reality. We live here on planet Earth. And I got tired of hearing about the church in Acts 2 and the church in Acts 2 and the community they had until I had a breakthrough. I observed something that I hadn't seen before. For these early believers, for these resurrection people, community was not the goal. It was the outcome. If you read Acts 1 and 2, I challenge you to go home and do this. You don't see people saying, hey, let's figure out how to have the best friends ever. Let's figure out how to have the best church ever. Let's figure out how to be the best community together. No, what happened was they had witnessed their God come back from the dead. And they began to expect that what he did was possible through them. And they looked around and go, man, there are a lot of people who are witnesses and who are expecting great things and they found community. In essence, their their process was, we're going to witness the resurrection of Jesus. Not just watch it happen, but be witnesses to it ourselves. And the outcome was a united community. Community was what they got at the end of the process, but it took a while to get there. You see, these early believers, they believed what Paul said later in Romans 8.1, when Paul said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. They believed that the power that rolled the stone away and raised Jesus from the dead was within them. Do something real quick. Take, take your two fingers like this and put it on your wrist. So you're taking your pulse. And be quiet so you can concentrate on it. These early believers didn't just believe right now that you were feeling blood pulsing through your veins. They believed that you were experiencing resurrection power. Pump, 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 pump. And so they experienced God move in powerful ways and that united them together. And so they began to ask, what does resurrection mean here? What does it mean here in this family where all they've known is brokenness and dysfunction? Is it possible for them to change? What does it mean here in my finances where all I've known is stress and anxiety and debt and being overwhelmed? What would resurrection mean here? What would resurrection mean in this person who is, quote, never going to amount to anything? What, what could this person be because of the resurrection? This area that's only known sex trafficking, could it be a place where children are transformed? See, they began to ask again and again, what would resurrection mean here? And it transformed their relationship together. Let me push you a little bit today. I think the challenge that we face is that we want the outcome without the process. We want the outcome without the process. Think about it. For some of these people, they spent three years together on a daily basis. They went everywhere together with Jesus. They watched him be killed. They were hopeless. And they watched him come back from the dead. They received the Holy Spirit like tongues of fire, spoke languages they didn't know, and watched their church go from 120 to 3,000. Of course, they were bonded together. You would too if you had been through that. And many of us, we go, I want that kind of community, but I want it without having to wait that long. I want it without the death. I want it without the pain. I want it without the patience. If there is a struggle in the church today, it's people who talk about that kind of community as this high ideal. And yet they ignore the process that it takes to get it. I moved to Prescott nine months ago, and one of the things people have asked me is, hey, what do you notice about Prescott? Well, one of the things I've noticed is I've never seen church hopping like I see in Prescott. There's over a hundred churches in the Quad Cities area. And I feel like I meet some people who've been to all of them. And don't get me wrong, there have been some dark days for some churches in Prescott. There are some that are in the middle of dark days right now. So many of you are here in Cornerstone because you were in another church and you were hurt. And you were wounded. And you came here to heal. But many of us read Acts 2 and we go, man, I long to be part of a church like that. And yet we don't do the process that gives us that kind of outcome. You see, here's the bigger problem. When we make an outcome an idol, we resent the process. 
and my generation, our idol is community. Man, I just long for that kind of community. Well, guess what? You're resenting the process. The process is time. The process is vulnerability. The process is patience. The process is sharing life together. I lived in Phoenix for 14 years. Guess what? The community I have here after nine months is nothing compared to that. And that's okay. Because nine months can't compete with 14 years. I've been in a small group here at Cornerstone for four months. Doesn't compare to the small group I had in Phoenix for four years. And that's good. But guess what that means? We have to keep showing up. We have to keep being real. We have to keep studying the scriptures together. We have to keep doing life together. Because one day we will become that kind of community. But not without that kind of process. And for many of us here, we want community. But we haven't yet engaged the process. And that's why we're so disappointed. I've got some challenges for you because it feels a little bit uncomfortable in the room. (laughs) On the back, you have some next steps. And they're all questions. Here's the first one. I want you to ask this week the question of what is my life a witness to? I really want you to wrestle with this question. And the way I want you to wrestle with it is I want you to get some input. I want you to ask it yourself, but then I want you to go to two or three people that you're close to. I want you to ask it to them. What this means is that you do not copy and paste this question on Facebook and wait for comments. Somebody in this room was going to do that, so I had to say that. You go to those people and say, hey, I want to ask you a question and you're going to be tempted to lie to me because what you say might hurt me. And don't worry, I'm a crier, so I'll cry, but I'll be okay. And then you ask them, what is your perspective? What is my life a witness to? Anxiety, stress, pride, ego, despair, hypocrisy. What do you witness with my life? The next thing you need to do is listen, okay? Do not argue with them. Do not challenge them. Do not explain why they don't see things fully. Just listen and then integrate their feedback. For some of us, the reason why people don't tell us the truth is because we don't listen when they do. So ask the question, what is my life a witness to? Second, ask the question, what am I expecting? On a daily basis, what am I expecting when I get out of bed and I begin my day? Am I expecting resurrection? Am I expecting this power is still at work in the world and in my life, or did it just happen to Jesus a long time ago? Remember, our expectations shape our experience. This isn't to say that because you expect resurrection, it's going to happen every single time and on your time frame, which is yesterday. But it is to say that you will not experience resurrection as the continual pattern of what God does if you don't expect it. So here's a prayer that you could pray. God, I believe you're at work in the world and you're bringing resurrection. My eyes are open and looking today. Now, no one is going to write this prayer down in a prayer book and sell it at Costco. This is not Jesus calling here, people. But this prayer is a genuine heartfelt prayer that I believe God moves in response to. 
And I believe some of us need to start praying and expecting resurrection. And the third question is, who am I sharing life with? Where am I applying myself to the process that God uses to birth community? My friend Hank says that cause creates community. We don't make friends outside of common work and time and sweat together. And so one of the challenges for today for some of you is you need to join a community group. You need to move from being a Sunday attender and being Sunday friends with people to actually having people that you spend time with outside of these rows. Because you can know people in a circle in a way that you never can in this row. Hi, how you doing? During the meet and greet, it's not going to lead to deep community. Now, these community groups aren't places where you're going to find your best friend ever. You're going to walk in one day and go, these are my people. Where have you been? I've been looking for you, you know? it's going to take time and work and they're as broken and imperfect as you are. But that context is the place through which God does that. And some of you are in these community groups and you realize that you may need to go beyond one night a week with those people. You may need to go, hey, let's start getting together more regularly. I've got a friend that for the last 17 months, we have called each other at 7.30 every day and prayed for one another. I've spent hours on the phone with him. Do you know the difference between where we were in December of 2015 and where we are in April of 2017? So this week when something happens in his family, he calls me, hey, do you have two minutes? Yeah. He tells me I pray for him. He never would have been that honest with me a year and a half ago. And me with him. It's taken 17 months, 52 weeks. We're talking, I mean, there's hundreds of hours, thousands of hours on the phone and being together. And that's what it takes to build those kind of relationships. Back to the big idea. When we witness resurrection, we become resurrection people. We'll never move Easter beyond a day in the spring until we experience resurrection ourselves and begin living, expecting it every day. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you came and died for us. That you didn't stay in that grave And we thank you that we have the scriptures that remind us that resurrection didn't stop on Easter Sunday. But it has been at work in our world for 2,000 years, transforming lives, transforming corners and pockets of this world. And we believe that one day it will transform our entire world. And this morning, if we're honest, many of us have gotten over it the same way we've turned the page from last Sunday. Break our hearts over that. We repent for that. Some of us are in the room today and we're realizing that we are here for a reason. And that reason is that you want to bring resurrection power in and through you want to do in us what you did in your son, Jesus. You want to bring life out of death. You want to bring hope out of darkness. You want to bring beauty out of ashes. You want to bring light where we saw nothing possible. We pray that we might experience the power of your resurrection in a way that marks us 
may we remember the ways that you have marked us in the past and live as martyrs to that. Every single day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For some of you this morning that you need to put your faith in the resurrected Lord today. You've been trying to do life on your own. You've been trying to do it according to your own power and strength. And you're recognizing that you need to be resurrected. This morning, you could invite Jesus to resurrect your life today. In your seat, you could come down front and talk to one of our prayer partners. Some of you need to repent, as I said, for the fact that Easter has been one day a year for you. You've not been a resurrection person. Well, you have been, just one out of 365 days. And you need to repent and say, God, I want you to bring this resurrection power on a daily basis in me. And some of you, you need to shift from being an observer to being engaged. Cornerstone's not a perfect church. Far from perfect. But this is a place where you can love and be loved, to know and be known, and where God can use you as a resurrection person. And maybe for you, it's one step forward today. As Epi and the band lead us, I pray that the words of this song will be true. That the resurrected king would continue to resurrect lives. Would you stand and sing with us? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.